0: This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast originally appeared on the Australian Finance Podcast, our biggest podcast channel at RASC. It features my co-host Kate Campbell and Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman is a British author and journalist, formerly writing the weekly column, This Column Will Change Your Life, for the Guardian newspaper. In 2021, he published a book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. It's a self-help book on the philosophy and psychology of time management and happiness. In this podcast, Kate and Oliver talk about why he chose the title of 4,000 Weeks, how we can embrace the fact that our time is finite, how to deal with procrastination, when can effort and inconvenience actually enrich our experiences, and how to view the idea of balance, rest, and work. I really hope you enjoy this episode with Kate Campbell featuring Oliver Berkman, author and journalist.
1: Oliver, thank you so much for joining me on the Australian Finance Podcast today.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Now you're coming all the way from the UK and we have talked about your book a little bit before on the show, but I would love to know maybe in 30 seconds, who is Oliver Berkman?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think maybe I would as well. Anyway, The simple version of that answer to that question. I'm an author and a journalist. I worked for many years for the Guardian newspaper here in the UK. One of the things I did was to write a column called This Column Will Change Your Life that was all about self-help, philosophy, science of happiness, things like that. And I've also lived and worked quite extensively in the United States. But my British American family is now in Yorkshire, uh, where I'm coming to you from today. And my most recent book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, is the one that I think you probably want to focus on more here. But that's really about um, what changes in how we think about using our time and building a meaningful life when we really take account of uh, just how little time we get.
1: Having a column called This Column Will Change Your Life is a pretty big title. Did it change your life?
2: Well, look, first of all, I ended up having to explain to many people that it was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek, right? I thought it was obvious when we agreed that name for the column that it was going to be like a, a deliberately hyperbolic claim. But then, of course, you think, well, it depends what change your life means, doesn't it? I mean, change in very small ways. I hope that maybe that was the case for readers. And anyway... For me, yes, absolutely. It changed my life in a fairly big way because it meant that for more than a decade, really, I got to experiment on a weekly basis with certain ideas that I was interested in, trying out various systems and ways of life and reading and reviewing all sorts of interesting writing. And it's just a great discipline to be obliged to submit copy on a weekly basis. It's a great discipline for sort of getting writing done, getting a little bit less perfectionistic and precious about writing and for sort of trying out ideas and ways of thinking about the world that I then got to incorporate into books as well.
1: I know when I recommend your book, well, your latest one to friends and family, one of the first questions I often get asked is why 4,000 weeks? So I thought I'd, I'd put that one to you today.
2: Well, 4,000 weeks is extremely roughly the average lifespan of a person. In the developed world in the 21st century, there are certainly variations. And I did round it down in order to get to that uh, sort of round number. But I think the point for me in that title, and specifically in using the idea of weeks instead of days or years, is that it really, really puts the focus on the fact that life is very finite. Because if I'd expressed it in days, the number would be much, much bigger. And obviously it feels very easy to kind of waste a day and wonder where a day of your life went, but at least you get thousands and thousands of them. On the other hand, years, it would be far fewer, but a year feels like a very, very long time and it's difficult to sort of waste a whole year. I think the thing that troubles me (laughs) about weeks is that it is kind of quite easy to not know where the last week or two went. And yet at the same time, 4,000 doesn't feel to most people, like a big enough number to be able to fritter them in any way. So that's what I'm trying to get out there, I think. 4,000
1: does feel quite finite. I mean, we do many things. We might have done 4,000 workouts. So it does feel like it's a number that's within our reach. So I guess that does bring it home a little bit. And one of the big things we talk about on the show is not just investing your money well, but also investing your time well. And I'd be interested to hear what got you so interested and intrigued by the, the concept of time and how we think about it as humans.
2: Well, I think it's just endlessly fascinating. There's sort of different levels of response to your question. One is that I think when I'm writing books, I'm always looking for some framing device that really just allows me to write about the meaning of life. And because everything unfolds in time, I think there's a strong case to be made that how we think about and relate to our time just covers everything. And I like that because I'm a generalist and I want to be able to ask questions about and find answers about all aspects of life. The more kind of treat you as my therapist response to the question is that I think I've always, especially as a younger adult, almost obsessively looking for ways of managing my time, my tasks, my attention, my schedule, so that I might get to this State that I never got to of feeling like I was finally on top of everything, like I was in this commanding position with respect to my time, that I could do all the things that were being asked of me, that I could do all the things I wanted to do as well, uh, have lots of free time, but also accomplish a lot and achieve financial security and all the rest of it. And thinking that there must be some method out there that would essentially enable me to do all the things. And um, really, I think this book is what came after realizing that Holy Grail doesn't exist. that if we're going to use time in fulfilling ways and create meaningful lives and invest our time wisely, as you say, it can't come from any kind of notion that we're going to be able to do everything that feels important or valuable.
1: Mm, it's interesting. Do you know where that feeling sort of or- originates, that we should be able to master our time and to get everything we want done in a day completed?
2: Well, if you go far enough back, I think it we're talking about a sort of timeless human desire to not have to die, really. I mean, if we're (laughs) going to get super abstract and universal about it, getting just a little bit less abstract, I think that specifically I think that sort of way, finding ways of denying mortality is pretty timeless, but I think using time specifically to do that is something that has been available to us as, as humans only more recently because of the ideas about time that various developments like the invention of clocks and the industrial revolution led us to, which is precisely to this notion that time is a kind of a, it's a resource, it's a thing that you control or you can control. You have a relationship to it, right? That could be adversarial, could be peaceful. This whole notion that there's time and then there's you, and they're two separate things, and you have to sort of deal with that relationship properly, I think is on a historical time scale relatively new. I think that most people, for most of human history, and there's fairly good evidence, you know, readings to base this on wouldn't have had that sense. They would just have experienced time as the unfolding moment, right? It's just time is the medium that their lives unfolded in, as opposed to this quantified notion that we really have doubled down on in the the modern era of time as something that we're sort of it's constantly sort of tracking us or passing us by. And it's our obligation to try to extract the most value out of each passing hour before it, before it goes away. That depends on a very specific outlook that I don't think is always inevitable at all.
1: Mm, it's interesting because we our iPhone's telling us exactly how much time we spent on any given task during a day. Many of us work in companies where we have to work exact hours, minutes, and things like that. Do you think the more we measure our time, the worse off we are as a society?
2: I think that can very often be the case. I mean, I'm not making the claim in the book or here that that we can just sort of walk away from this modern notion of time or that it's useless. I think anything that involves large-scale coordination of people and resources requires this kind of understanding of time. And so, you know, the number of wonderful modern technologies and advances that we have that we wouldn't have had without it, I think is, is huge. But yeah, I think certainly on a personal level, when it comes to how you organize your own day, and obviously some people, as you say, are under direct pressure from their organizations to have this kind of hyper-vigilant attitude towards their time. Others may be able to choose it. I don't think it's helpful at all. One of the reasons I think it isn't helpful is because sort of almost automatically causes you to seek to evaluate every hour that you spend, everything you're doing for some future goal, right? It's entirely, it asks you to consider time as being well spent or poorly spent entirely on the basis of where it's leading you. And in the most sort of brutal form, that's just because people are being paid by the hour or they are Operate uh, working in a setting which has where of uh, billable hours billed to clients. But even if you're just using it all to meet targets that are not necessarily temporal or financial, it still has this effect of kind of constantly postponing all the meaning of what you're doing to the future, to where your time is taking you. And one of the points I was keen to try to emphasize in the book is that at some point, at least in some bits of your life, the value of Time has to be now, otherwise you never get to the part of life which is valuable. And I think that one really obvious example of that in terms of how you invest time and money, for that matter, is the sort of fallacy of postponing all the real meaning of your life to retirement, for example. That's something that even very prudent financial management tends to encourage us to do. And it is important. You shouldn't neglect those years when you won't be earning and will have time and will hopefully have the health and energy to really enjoy life. But like, it can't all be about the future always, because then it's never actually now that you're sort of getting the benefit of being alive.
1: It's a really interesting trade-off. And we talk about it a lot on the show with our community of what you do now versus what you put off for the future, because often we don't have the financial resources or the time to do everything we might want to at this present moment. And so we do have to allocate future goals and future things we want to do to other decades or other years. And how do you think about that? Because it's quite hard when you go, well, I might only have 10 years left, but I want to do all these things, but I can't afford or I don't have the time to take off work to do them in this year.
2: I mean, at the risk of getting too obscurely philosophical about it all, I think that this is where one needs to slightly break apart the idea of investing money and investing time. Money really is a resource in the ordinary sense of the word resource. It's the ultimate resource in certain ways. I don't question any of the sort of most sensible wisdom about how you should apportion it, put it aside, make sure you spend it to a certain degree, but while understanding that actually a lot of it needs to be put aside, invested, saved for the future. Time I'm not sure that investing time, if you really think carefully about it, I'm not sure the idea of investing time makes as much sense. And so it may be that you want to spend a decade working hard with a view to the idea that in a later decade, you won't want to be working so hard or at all. But it's not quite the same in the sense that like, you don't actually want to be using that decade to do something so soul-destroying that you're effectively, effectively wasting that portion of your life for the purposes of a future time. You may well want to be living more frugally so you can put money aside, but in the time context, I think if anything, most people, most sort of people who think clearly about this stuff, and I'm guessing most listeners to this, their biggest risk is actually too much prudence about too much concern for future self, as opposed to being so purely hedonistic that they are not being sufficiently prudent. And again, I think you can split apart the money and the time things. It's not necessarily that you should go and spend lots and lots of money now in order to enjoy life the most, but you should be clear that the things you're doing with your life right now are part of your life. (laughs) And It doesn't matter if, you know, it's perfectly judicious to make that trade-off and to say it's a, the hours are slightly longer than I would ideally choose, or I'm a little bit more exhausted at the end of the week than I would ideally choose. But if it isn't somewhere near the middle of what really counts as meaningful for you now, it's a problematic way to use your life, right? Because you are just using up time in that sense. What we call investing time can very often also just be using it up. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. And I think we can often get caught up in that trap where we just keep delaying something for a future moment because we're putting the time in today for something in the future and we forget to actually ever live in the moment we have right now.
2: Right. And I don't think it means, I think these things can absolutely go together, right? I mean, when I'm writing a book, I'm doing something that I hope at it's best is absorbing in the moment, but is absolutely focused on a long-term outcome. And there are plenty of days when it's Kind of awful. And I still do it because it means something to be doing it. And, you know, people far less fortunate than me who have to work in jobs that they really dislike. There are contexts where that's the most meaningful thing to do, because if what really matters to you is providing for your family and the only options that are open to you, you feel is work that you don't love to do. You're still doing something meaningful because you've aligned your actions with your goals in a rational way, right? You're doing the thing that you feel you need to do for the goal that really, really matters. I think the thing you want to avoid is doing work that doesn't feel like it matters, spending your time in general on things that don't feel like they matter, either in and of itself or for some goal like that that you have to be invested in, that you are invested in. But just because you've you've sort of got onto that treadmill and that you're sort of following the incentives and the structure of that industry sector or whatever it is, and you're just sort of, it's not, you're climbing the wrong mountain as the idiom has it. So I think it's really, really just important to think about that fact that each day of your life is a day of your life, and it, it should be something that you're going to be broadly happy to have spent on. I think
1: there's a a big push, and I would say across a lot of my community to do, as you mentioned, work that matters. And something that really stood out to me in your book is that you talk about the fact that our time is finite. You really sort of get that point across quite a few yes, times in that yes. we're, we're never going to have enough time to do everything we want to do. I feel like we actually need to be reminded of that. Even though it does seem obvious, it doesn't actually seem obvious. Are there any approaches to sort of internalizing this
2: that have worked for you in a positive way? Well, yeah, I just want to say I think it's really important to make the point that the title of my book may be scary and alarming, and to some extent, that's deliberate. But the message I really hope is liberating and relaxing and de stressing, right? So I think it's not about saying we have very little time, so you've really got to pack every single day with kind of astonishing high effort, high intensity activities. It's about saying when you really see that there will always be just radically more that would have been a meaningful use of your time than you'll actually be able to do with your time. When you see that your to-do list will always be too long, that somebody's always going to be disappointed in you for not doing something just as a result of you're doing other things with other people, all of this, it's like it's a weight off your shoulders because then you're no longer spending your life sort of scrambling to achieve kind of, you know, escape velocity from the human condition. You're just in your life, you're accepting that you're finite, that the world of possibility is infinite. And then you're picking as well as you can, as wisely as you can, a few things to focus your time on. And you're just completely accepting that like being human means putting up with the loss of all the other, the other ones. To me, that is that mindset shift. And I'm not perfect at it. And I don't live my life in a state of total equanimity and serenity far from it but to the extent that I've made that mindset shift it's relaxing it's what enables me to focus first thing in the morning on some work that really matters to me and that sort of moves the needle in my work and to be okay with the fact that there's like a thousand other things that need doing and to know that I will give them some time later on but it leads to a much steadier way of kind of engaging with the world that is that is good that is fun that is enjoyable so I don't think it's a kind of a a bleak message. It's sort of maybe tough to hear initially in certain ways. I think it's relaxing in the end. Mm.
1: And I know you you mentioned that focusing on work in the morning that actually moves the needle. And I know to-do lists always get brought up in conversations about time and time management. Do you see them as sort of a pointless tool or do you see some point in that fact that you could have the to-do list, but if you just accept that, you're going to do the most important things on that list and some things just won't get done.
2: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Right, exactly. I think it's all as with every kind of productivity technique, of which a to do list is, you know, the paradigmatic uh, example. It's a question of the spirit in which you are using that that thing, and I think that um, lists, as understood by David Allen, author of the the great uh, book Getting Things Done, that sort of um, kickstarted a whole new modern era in in productivity writing. Lists as as a way to not have to rely on your brain to keep track of everything. Those are that's a fantastic use of of lists, lists as reminders so that you can have faith that you're not dropping any balls because you can always go and check the list if you need to. Absolutely great. Sort of what I call closed lists, you know, short lists of five things a day or something that you're going to aim to get done that day. Also great. The only problem with a to-do list is if it's part of your feelings of self-worth for the day that you get to the bottom to the end of it. And also it's open-ended because like, then it's just you're going to always aim to do more than you have time for. You're going to feel that you absolutely have to do more than you have time for, which philosophically speaking makes no sense at all, but we do it all the time anyway. You're going to probably end up with a longer to-do list than you started with because you're not saying okay, I've got five slots on this list for today. You're just saying, I'm just going to keep endlessly extending it. So I'm certainly not hostile to to to-do lists, but I do think that the sheer fact of adding something to a to-do list or keeping your to-do list in a nice fancy notebook or a nice, really beautifully designed app, it's not going to change the fact that your time is finite. It's not going to magically cause you to become so hyper-efficient that there's no limit to what you can get done.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because you, as you tick off one or two things on the to-do list, usually that leads to more tasks appearing on the to-do list. It's like emails. When you send an email, you usually get an email back.
2: Right, right, right. Absolutely. I mean, one of the approaches, I use a slightly different version of this these days, but one of the approaches that I really like is this idea of keeping two to-do lists, right? You keep one sort of open list, which can be, you just put everything on it that's on your plate, everything that comes up. could be hundreds of items long but it's just a reminder. It's just a recording mechanism. It's not an attempt to say, I'm going to get through all this this week, or whatever. Then you keep a second list, which has a fixed number, a closed list that has a fixed number of slots on it, maybe five, maybe 10. And you sort of feed tasks from the long list to the short list. And the rule is that you can't add another task to the short list until you've freed up a slot by doing something on it. So it's if I've made that clear, you're just sort of creating an artificial bottleneck in your workflow so that you focus on a few things and make all the other ones wait. And this general philosophy of sort of limiting your work in progress, putting an artificial limit on how many things you allow yourself to have on your plate at any one time is a really helpful intervention, I find, for avoiding the lure of just sort of endless multitasking, trying to sort of touch in on 40 projects over the course of a day and finding at the end of the day that you made progress on none of them.
1: (laughs) Something that's worked for me in the last year is actually limiting the number of those recurring projects. So the things that usually have an item you have to do on a weekly basis, because it can be so easy to say yes to a lot of things and overcommit and then realize you've got no time left for everything else that happens in life.
2: Right, right. No, absolutely. I think that kind of Thinking about where you're limiting things is really important. Something that I do, I mean, I'm a writer, it doesn't apply to everybody, but I really try to make sure there are three or four hours at the start of the workday given to the sort of core work, the core writing, research, things like that. And then, you know, I'll have some time at the end of that for answering emails and doing admin, but it'll be limited because eventually I have to stop and go and, you know, pick up my son or make dinner or whatever it is. And so you put a sort of boundary around this Infinity pool of admin because you're never getting to the bottom of that anyway. So, really, the only way to keep it manageable is to put temporal boundaries around it and get up and walk away when the boundary comes.
1: I feel like one of the peculiar things that has emerged, even though we've got busier and busier in air quotes, and we seem to have more in our calendars, is the fact that we really procrastinate. Everyone seems to struggle with this, and especially with the amount of digital tools and distractions we have around us? Why do you think we get caught up in this constant procrastination trap, even if we're working on a project that really excites us?
2: I think there are multiple reasons, but I do think that a lot of it has to do with a certain different varieties of perfectionism not necessarily perfectionism in terms of wanting to produce perfect work. Uh, that That's one reason people procrastinate, right? They don't want to bring something into reality because the fantasy in their minds of how great it is can only be sort of damaged by bringing it into reality. Nothing you ever actually produce can be as good as a sort of perfect fantasy of it. And that's not because you're not good. It's just a fact about how reality works. But also I think people have perfectionistic fantasies about being very efficient and not dropping any balls, perfectionistic fantasies about how quickly they're going to answer email. And if you can't do all that because you're overwhelmed, because there's too much, it's very tempting to just not do any of it at all. This phenomenon that I think many of us are familiar with of having so much to do that you don't want to do any of it, right? It's like this sort of ridiculous ironic situation where a small amount of time would be better. Like it would be better to spend one hour on your work and spend the whole of the rest of the day at the beach than to sit at your desk, like failing to get to the things that make the difference. But we don't want to do that because it really involves, you know, the encounter with the reality. So if you're worried that your inbox is going to be uh, sort of, Appallingly full when you check it. That's an incentive after a while not to check your inbox. And then, of course, it will be appallingly full because you weren't (laughs) checking it. There's a parallel here. I know that people get into this situation with their finances, right? They don't want to check account balances because they don't want to go through that brief moment of uh, realizing that it's smaller than they thought. In fact, it's only after you've done that that you're empowered to start doing things and taking actions and living in a different way. And it's always worth getting the information. But I think that people certainly procrastinate on overwhelming amounts of things because they're overwhelmed, because it feels like there's too much to do. And so why begin any of it? And you are afraid of discovering exactly how tight the deadline is and all the rest of it.
1: Mm, It's almost like we don't want to sit with that discomfort and those feelings that we don't quite like for very long.
2: Right. Exactly. No, exactly. It's the degree to which we will fail to do things because of what is really very mild discomfort is always kind of astonishing to me. And this is behind the advice that always then is given, which is to break things into the smallest possible chunks, to work on things for a minute, to sort of make things incredibly non-intimidating in what you're asking of yourself. And yeah, I mean, the reason that works is because you can get it small enough that it sort of flies under the radar of your horror of discomfort. And uh, it becomes sort of absurd, right? Anyone can work on anything for one minute. You sort of, I find anyway, sometimes you have to treat yourself like a sort of particularly dim child and sort of take yourself by the hand and say, like, we're just going to do this for two minutes. And um, it's embarrassing, except no one else ever has to know that it's what's going on in your head. And uh, But it works. Yeah, it works.
1: Yeah, there is something to be said of uh, parenting yourself. It's like when you're at the supermarket and making choices about what if you're buying healthy food or unhealthy food, it's almost like you're going to be a good person. You're going to do this. You're going to look
2: after yourself. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You talk to yourself kindly and with compassion, but with your best interests at heart rather than your uh, necessarily your immediate impulses. Yeah,
1: yeah I find the, the idea of discomfort really interesting. And something else you, you spoke about in the book is that sometimes the effort and the inconvenience and the discomfort of an activity or an experience, a purchase, actually makes the whole thing a little bit better or is sort of the point of the activity. And I'd be keen for you to share your thoughts on this and maybe some personal examples of where the effort is actually added to the activity or the purchase.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the part of the book you're referring to is where I'm sort of thinking through this idea of convenience that dominates our culture in so many ways today. There are so many businesses built on the idea that there's some annoyance in your life. In Silicon Valley, they tend to Call it a pain point, which always strikes me as a bit melodramatic, but there's a pain point of having to search around for coins in your wallet or your purse. So that's what contactless payments uh, gets rid of. The pain point of having to find a number for a taxi firm. So that's what ride sharing or ride hailing apps get you over. And again and again, there are all these ways of making life smoother, reducing the effort, and then we find sort of once we've given our lives over to this way of behaving that it's sort of smoothed over some of the things that seem to make life really meaningful and enjoyable. So even just those very tiny human interactions that you're spared by using a food delivery app where you never have to speak to a human, it's more comfortable if you don't particularly like having to talk to strangers on the phone. But it's those little interactions—they're they're they're much more meaningful and valuable than we than we realise. I think not because you're going to have some deep conversation with the person at the restaurant, but just because like we're humans, we evolved to interact with other humans. An example I give in the book that is always very striking to me is those services where, like, if you didn't mail a birthday card to somebody in time in in another country, you can go online and like design the card and then set it all up and like write your message and they then print it and mail it from like the country where it's its destination is. So that spares you all the problems of having to take to the post office in time and get it stamped up in time to get to Australia or America, wherever it might be. And um, fine. If the alternative is that the my friend or relative doesn't get a card, then I guess it is a lot better than than nothing. But I feel like Both people in that exchange do understand that it's not quite the same as a handwritten card or a card that was sent from the country of origin. Not because there's anything so amazing about handwriting, but just because that shows that your friend or your relation was like thinking about you sufficiently (laughs) to actually incorporate that plan into their life rather than panickingly realizing a day before your birthday that it's your birthday. And that's an example of where the effort, it's the effort that counts. It's not the thought that counts. It's the effort that counts. It's the, it's the willingness to put yourself out for that reason that sort of conveys your love for that person or the friendship that you feel for that person. And yet the knowledge that that service now exists is part of what causes you to endlessly postpone the effort that would be required. So I think it's difficult because you have to start acting in a really sort of culturally perverse way if you're going to start making sure that you do the right thing in these contexts. Everything about our environment invites us to do the opposite.
1: I find it interesting and it stood out to me because over the past 12 months, I've lived in a different area and I've been super close to all of those. You've got your local butcher and your baker and your dry cleaner and your gym. And I've actually been, because it's only a couple of minutes of walk away, I've actually been using all these services and talking to these people on a regular basis. And it's interesting comparing it to growing up in the country where you weren't able to walk to any local places. And I actually realized it wasn't on purpose, but over time I've realized it's nice to have those connections to local community and they might not know your name, but they're aware of you and they you get to see them on a regular basis. There's something about that.
2: Right, absolutely. And I mean, I've been finding that too. We actually have moved to the country, but in a setting where I drive 15 minutes to a small town and have all those those small shops and services. The thing is, it's not just kind of better in the deep sense of human connection and all of that. It's like it's actually more convenient, right? It's actually a quicker way of getting through your errands. That's the other thing that I always find so ironic about all of this. I needed to put some stuff together for a passport application the other day. You know, you need to get the right size photograph and a prepaid envelope and all sorts of things that you need to have together to send off. And you can pretty much do all this now in such a way that those items will get delivered to your door. But I went and did it all with a in a place where there was a post office and a library with a photocopier and a couple of other places. And like, it was done in 20 minutes. So the irony of this is that actually these things that promise convenience and then sort of eliminate human contact, don't even deliver on the convenience, (laughs) right? They're not even quicker at ways much of the time to get those jobs done.
1: It's just tech companies in Silicon Valley have made us think that they're a lot more convenient, even if they're not.
2: Right, what they do is they appeal to your most immediate impulse to not exert yourself, right? Because I would rather not go and get in the car and drive to the town and walk around and go to the shops like on the level of my most in my sort of basest impulses, I'd rather remain on the sofa. Yeah. But it's not what I want for, for my life. And for my use of my time, it's just that very low level, immediate sort of desire to conserve energy or whatever it is.
1: And it's interesting. One of the last questions I wanted to ask you was just about the value of leisure, because we're often go, go, go. I know a lot of our listeners are wanting to go up the career ladder. They're wanting to increase their income. They Maybe they want to start a side hustle and it can become very easy to feel like the time that you spend on the couch reading a book is wasted time. Mm. And I was wondering how you sort of weigh up the idea of balancing rest and work and times where maybe you're not doing anything that has an end result, but is good from just the process of reading the book or something like that.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I totally struggle with this. Obviously, books of advice like this one that I've written are are written for the author trying to figure out how to get around their, their own struggles. But it is really true and has become more and more obvious to me as I've sort of researched and written about this stuff that really leisure is the ultimate example of that. I mean, we touched on this a little bit earlier talking about how if you endlessly instrumentalize all your time, if you look only to the future goals that you're getting to, then you don't really have a get to the value of life itself and i think leisure is a really really clear example of this because by definition almost certainly in ancient philosophical understandings of leisure the whole point is that you're not working towards some future goal these days people tend to instrumentalize their leisure as well so they're always sort of training for a marathon or at the very least resting so that they have more energy for work the next day or whatever but that sense of doing something for its own value. It's really hard for us as achievement-oriented driven people in the culture and economy that we live in to sort of allow ourselves that. We don't even want to do it most of the time. You have to get used to the fact that when you first begin to sit down on the couch to read a novel or when you fir- on the first day of your beach vacation or whatever it is, it's probably not going to feel great. It's going to feel like the flywheel of achievement and instrumentalization. It's still spinning too fast, but it does slow down. And then that kind of experience can be really gratifying. And I write in the book a bit about, you know, absolutely nothing against side hustles, but we have lost hobbies to quite a significant extent in our era because the difference between a hobby and a side hustle is that the side hustle has some sort of end goal, income generation, maybe for it to become a main professional pursuit. A hobby, almost, almost by definition, I think a hobby is something that you just do because you enjoy the experience of doing it. You might get better at something, of course, in learning a musical instrument or a form of artistic creation or something. But you do it for itself. And as I say in the book, I don't think it's coincidence that there's something sort of strangely a bit embarrassing these days about hobbies, but really quite hip and cool about side hustles, right? It's like you have to be a bit, again, nothing against side hustles, but you have to be a little bit countercultural to be willing to let yourself spend you know, a couple of hours a week just building your muzzle train set or learning origami for no reason other than you want to learn origami. I think it's really useful to have something like that in your life, really just as a kind of a beacon to remind you that at some point, the value of life has to be now.
1: I like that. And sometimes hobbies can just be a hobby. They don't need to be monetized. And you can just be bad at something and you don't necessarily have to get good at it.
2: Well, that's a whole other part of this, right? Yeah. I think it's <laughs> almost good to have something that you're not good at. I write in the book about playing piano badly, rock piano mainly, mainly right. with headphones so that no one else has to listen to me. And, like, you know, I guess part of me would like to be super, super good at it. But it's really low pressure, precisely because I'm not aiming for anybody's accolades or to earn any money from it. I guarantee that's never going to happen. Whereas all those things are kind of implicated in my work as a writer. You know, when I'm writing, I can't quite completely just play because I do want it to come out right and I do hope to get paid for it and and all the rest. So there's a role for a hobby in your life and there's a role for a hobby that you're not very good at.
1: Wonderful. Well, Oliver, we have covered a lot of ground today, and I think there's a lot for everyone to really think about and reflect on. But if you had to leave listeners with one thing, if people only remember one thing coming out of this conversation, what would you want that to be?
2: I think I would say to sort of reflect briefly on your life and to find, you know, there'll be something that strikes you as very important for you, very meaningful for you in your life that you're not currently doing. Could be a creative work, could be nurturing a certain relationship that you've let get unnurtured, could be physical movement, all sorts of things. There's something, at least one thing in your life that you really value, except that it turns out you're not actually doing it at all at the moment. And I would just really invite people listening to make time today, or maybe tomorrow, if you're listening to this late in the evening, and just do that thing do something related to that thing for a few minutes. I'm not talking about a few minutes every day. I'm not talking about building big new habits where you're always going to spend 20 minutes a day working on your novel. I'm talking about once. I'm talking about right away, not waiting till the time when you have lots and lots and lots of empty free time in which to do it because that isn't coming.
1: I love it. Wonderful. Well, Oliver, I'll include links to your books and all of your social media channels in the show notes. But was there anything, any other resources or links you wanted to direct people to?
2: No, my website, oliverberkman.com is the place to find links to all the other stuff. No, that's it really. Yeah.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me this morning all the way from the UK.
2: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.